Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. When you fly into Doha, the FT's Gulf correspondent, Simeon Kerr, says you can see a lot of what fuels Qatar's economy. When you're landing in a plane, you can see bits of like industrial infrastructure, oil and gas infrastructure. If you come at night, you'll see the flaring of the gas from the oil and gas fields. But this small Gulf nation has changed significantly over the last few years. It's the host of this year's FIFA World Cup, which is happening right now, and it's spent over a decade preparing for it. It's shelled out $200 billion, making it the most expensive World Cup of all time. And Simeon says you can see some of this investment from the second your plane lands. You arrive in this brand new airport, very dark, but uh, kind of futuristic, almost like something out of a Star Wars set and come through and then there's this massive teddy bear. It's a massive furry teddy bear with its head in a lamp. And then you'll come out and there'll be, you know, this brand new metro which they've built or taxis everywhere, Ubers. Uh, and then you arrive into, into a modern city. Qatar is an oil-rich nation that became mega wealthy when it made a bet on liquefied natural gas in the 1990s. But... It knows that more countries are slowly moving away from fossil fuels, and it sees the World Cup as a way to help turbocharge its economy and push it further into other directions like tourism and finance. This notion of, you know, showcasing this small but diversifying economy around the world can be delivered through a successful hosting of the World Cup. From a sort of economic perspective, uh, they have accelerated their domestic development. I mean, they've spent a lot of their money into modernizing the city and the country. And the way they would see it is at the end, when that last ball is kicked, they, you know, they're going to have to get rid of some of the stadiums and repurpose some of them, but they will have an infrastructure that sets them up for the next hundred years of development. However, preparing for this cup has come with intense scrutiny. Qatar's attitude to same-sex relationships has prompted calls for the emirate to be shunned. Attention is focused intensely on Qatar's human rights record. Despite reforms, concerns persist over the treatment of labourers, especially on wider infrastructure projects. For years, Qatar's been building out its country's infrastructure to host more than a million fans over the next few weeks. But their goal of diversifying their economy may be complicated by certain human rights violations that have marred the country for decades. I'm Michaela Tendera from the Financial Times. On today's episode of Behind the Money... Will Qatar's $200 billion investment in the World Cup transform its economy? 
Hi, Simeon. Welcome to the show. Hi there. So let's rewind all the way back to 2010, when FIFA president Sepp Blatter announced the host of this year's World Cup. The winner to organize the 2022 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. Given their lack of football heritage and the small size of the country, there was obviously a lot of shock in the world of global football when they won it. Almost instant criticism from competing nations. But in Qatar, there was absolute wild jubilation. The entire city's streets came to a grinding halt as everyone went out in their cars, beeping their horns, waving flags from rooftops. Uh, there was a huge amount of jubilation that they would be able to you know, take that central place on the global footballing stage. Simeon, what did the world think of Qatar at that time? And what was its economy like? Well, in 2010, the global perception of Qatar was pretty limited, I'd say. I think when Seb Blatter opened that envelope with Qatar, as you said at the time, I think very few people would have known even where that was. If the 50s was its oil decade, then they borrowed a huge amount of money to develop LNG, liquefied natural gas. That started to bear fruit in the 90s and the noughties. And I'd say in the 2000s, they were trying to diversify, bring in finance, um, tourism, trying to find you know a, an economy that could eventually look after itself when oil ran out. And that is really where they were in 2010. So back then, was Qatar hosting major sporting events? They'd hosted the uh, the Asian Games in 2006. They had ambitions to host an Olympics. They were looking at events to feed into tourism. That's where they were then, but they weren't developed. I mean, in 20, I've been in and out of Doha for 20 years. And, you know, until then, it was always a, a difficult city to visit. You know, there would be really bad traffic. Trying to get a taxi was a nightmare. It just wasn't a particularly practical place to visit at that time. And they've managed to transform that now through this 12 years of uh, infrastructure development. Mm. So in order to prepare to host such a massive event like the World Cup, a lot of preparations needed. You know, stadiums, infrastructure to support hundreds of thousands of tourists, can you describe some of the steps that Qatar took to build out all of that? Basically, the entire infrastructure was upgraded. This brand new airport I talked about earlier, new port, Hamad Port, which uh, really expanded their ability to get stuff in and out of the country. The metro, uh, which opened a couple of years ago, is truly revolutionary, you know, managing to link all the stadiums for the games, but also more broadly the key parts of Doha's uh, economy linked up on this metro. It's changed how a lot of people have moved around the city since it started getting going. And the roads are huge uh, mega highways looping around the city. And all these uh, have been the most important parts of what they've done alongside the new stadiums and the upgrades that will actually host the games. But the last 12 years have also showcased a dark side to this major infrastructure overhaul. Low pay and even no pay is commonplace in Qatar's construction industry. 
Well, behind the scenes, many more are being exploited, unpaid, forced labor, badly treated. Migrant workers from Nepal are dying on the job in record numbers. The process through which you know, they built this, relying heavily on foreign labor, and so there's been a lot of criticism. The way that labor has been processed and used, uh, late payment of wages, non-payment of wages, just how these you know, migrant workers are treated, that's been a huge area of scrutiny. Yeah, there have been reports of migrants working in extreme heat and living in overcrowded, dirty housing, among other issues. Now, part of what you're talking about here, which has been widely criticized, is something called the kafala system. What is that? Yeah, kafala is essentially the legal framework through which any labor, any worker is hired into the Gulf. Uh, all the Gulf states use it to a certain extent. And it is the contractual basis on which a worker is brought in and they are bound to their employer. The employer has a lot of control over that uh, employee. And in the past, it's been prone to abuse. The, the employer has so much control over uh, their worker. And where are these migrant workers mostly from? Nepal, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. These would be the main source countries for manual labor. But what they'll do is they uh, they need to borrow money to pay an agent, maybe a thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars. That agent will get them their job as a laborer or a plumber or whatever it might be uh, in Qatar. And so their calculation is, if we stay there long enough, we are going to earn enough to pay back that very expensive loan that they've taken. They they seem to be paying thirty six percent annual interest on these loans. If they have a long time, they can definitely save up money. But oftentimes, if there are problems with that company or there's a change in economic conditions, they can lose their jobs. And then obviously, if you've got debt underneath that contract, it can be very damaging. So a lot of migrant laborers who are already working in abysmal conditions get stuck with loans that sometimes they can't pay back. People argue that that means that they're indentured labor, something akin to slavery. The problem was is the private sector in Qatar is so so addicted to this form of cheap foreign labor. It's true across the Gulf. And the private sector has always been very reluctant to change the way it deals with foreign labor. They felt that, you know, if there was too much liberalization of these restrictions, they would lose staff, they would lose money. So has the country addressed these labor issues at all? So they have introduced a lot of reforms through the last 12 years. And the, the key ones are, you know, dismantling the kafala sponsorship system to the extent that they've made it easier for people to move jobs. They have uh, introduced a mandatory minimum wage, the first Gulf state to do so. That has been big progress. Now, in the Gulf generally, uh, unionization is banned, and it's certainly banned in Qatar, but they have promoted the the idea of a worker representation or worker committees to try and sort of find a sort of interface between the workforce and management. Um, and they've set up some funds to try and compensate those people who've 
paid these recruitment fees, which are illegal in Qatar, but they are pretty much standard practice and very hard to eliminate. So the reforms that they've made, is that connected to the World Cup happening or what's been the impetus for them to change this system? I'm pretty sure that without this scrutiny, they would not have achieved as much of the, as they have done in terms of these reforms. I think it's also important to mention that you know, in the middle of this, in 2017, Qatar's neighbours turned on it, accused Qatar of sponsoring extremists in the Middle East and, and imposed a trade and travel embargo on the country, which was a huge event. And at that moment, I think, also accelerated these changes. Qatar found itself isolated from its neighbours, with only its allies outside the region batting for it. And I think that during that period, they realised they had to show that they were the kind of dependable Western ally in this circumstance that should be relied upon. I think without those extraneous factors, the international pressure and then this regional boycott, I don't think they would have made the progress that they did today. So, Simeon, basically, Qatar had to address these labour issues Otherwise, they'd A, risk the cup flopping, or B, risk losing other alliances too. But what have critics said about the reforms so far? You know, advocacy groups would say it's been a very slow, laboured way of reforming. And yeah, they say that, you know, there has been a lot of reform, but implementation has been patchy. They'll say it's still hard for workers to take advantage of the reforms. There's still a lot of uh, foot dragging from some of those who are implementing the changes and, and sort of regulating this market. And there are a lot of concerns from their part that when the tournament's over, that there could be some regression on that. There have been many other criticisms of Qatar surrounding things like treatment of the LGBTQ community, freedom of speech, and women's issues. Have there been any reforms in any of those areas in anticipation of the World Cup and all that scrutiny? These are conservative Islamic societies where generally homosexuality is illegal. There's very little recognition of gender theory. And so what they've done with that is said, can you please try and respect our culture when you come and visit there's been no uh, notion of trying to decriminalize homosexuality, for example. Now, Simeon, you spoke to a Qatari student named Miriam ahead of the cup, and she told you about how the country's culturally conservative society has made some attempts to adapt for the games. Uh, we're going to play some of what she said. I'm not sure if I can stand here and say that in 2021 we would have, um, you know, put in a minimum wage law, which is the first of its kind in the GCC region without the World Cup. Um, I don't know whether women's involvement in football stadiums would be as big and as popular as we've seen if it wasn't for the World Cup, if it wasn't for hosting um, major sporting events, if it wasn't for building these incredible stadiums that fit way more than what we could have imagined, right? So I think for women, this has been really excellent in terms of like neutralizing spaces that are typically male-oriented. Mariam also wondered about what everyday life will be like during the Cup. 
what is a Western football fan going to think when it comes to Qatar and realizes that, you know, certain um, measures are taking place, i.e. limiting alcohol, i.e. limiting certain like freedoms of expression. I think it's the Iran versus Wales game is actually on Friday at 1 p.m., which means that drinking will take place during Friday prayer. And so how will an Islamic conservative society deal with the fact that at 10 a.m. you'll have, you know, your neighbors drinking possibly whilst um, the Adhan is playing the background? And I think these are huge questions to be able to, you know, grapple with as a society, especially as your national identity is kind of like put on a pedestal and defined by its Islamic roots. How do you grapple with those conflicting interests? So, Simeon, the World Cup has pushed Qatar to take some steps to change their labor practices and also to make some temporary cultural shifts. Now, their larger goal coming out of the cup is to continue to diversify their economy away from oil and gas. So when or how will we know whether they've achieved this? Well, I mean, this is the million-dollar question, isn't it, always? Like, what does socioeconomic development going forward look like for these hydrocarbon-dominated economies going into a postal future? What does that look like? Going forward, it really depends on how fast the energy transition occurs, how quickly they manage to diversify their source of wealth away from oil and gas, and gas particularly. I mean, that's really the calibration. And it really just depends on how long the world remains addicted to hydrocarbons. So, Simeon, thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's been great to have you. No, you're welcome. Thanks a lot. Behind the Money is hosted by me, Michaela Tendera. Safia Ahmed is our producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco. Special thanks to Andrew England and Petros Ubasis. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.